Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have with us Professor Rachel Hutchinson from the University of Delaware and Professor Germier Pelletier-Gagnon from University de l'Ontario Francais in Toronto. Please excuse my French. Uh, their co-edited volume, Japanese Role-Playing Games, Genre, Representation, and Liminality in the JRPG, was published recently by Lexington Books. This volume gathered scholars from around the world to examine elements in Japanese role-playing games, also known as JRPG, as well as their implications of the social transformations, stereotypes, political, and social changes in Japan. So, hello, Rachel. Hello, Jingyi. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, and hello, Jeremy. Hello. Uh, thank you for, so much for having us today. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies. So, before we start talking about the book, can you um, tell us a bit about yourselves? What do you teach and research about? How, um, how, how, what do you teach and research about, Rachel? Uh, yeah, I teach Japanese language, literature, and film, uh, as well as translation and uh, visual culture, including video games. And I'm the current director of the Game Studies and Esports program at the University of Delaware. And I look at uh, research, my research is on representation and identity in Japanese narrative texts, including video games, of course. And I'm also interested in the power dynamics of censorship and colonialism and how they affect artistic expression. I also look at uh, stereotypes and how they're constructed and uh, how they're replicated in popular culture. That sounds very, um, very interesting. And I know a lot of that's reflected in the book. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. What about you, Jeremy? Um, so I'm, I've been researching Japanese video game studies since my, my time as an MA student, um, doing my uh, also research on, on arcades as a PhD student. And more recently, I've been um, uh, more um, 
studying how to use uh, text analysis methods in the digital humanities to to study game culture. So looking at um, social media textual productions and video game text material in, in general and to analyze bigger trends that might not be visible to uh, the first approach, let's say like that. Sounds like a lot of fun, uh, both of your research. So how did you and your co-authors begin working on this volume? Why did you choose uh, the topic of JRPG as the lens of your discussions? Is it because you play a lot of JRPG during your free time? Uh, yeah, I think both of us do play a lot of JRPGs, um, but mainly I think the reason we really wanted to do this book was because the JRPG as a genre does not have any book, you know, no dedicated scholarship that focuses just on that. Uh, Rachel and I have been working on, on JRPGs for, I think, separately from, uh, for many years now. Uh, I had worked on a piece in 2018 on, on text mining uh, video game reviews of JRPGs are found on the internet to, to examine really the origin of that. And I think this book is a continuation uh, of the questions that, that sprung up from that project uh, at the time. And, and uh, when Rachel and I got uh, together in the um, 2019 Rippling Japan conference, I think over coffee break, uh, the idea sprang out that maybe we should do that as mentioned, uh, as Rachel mentioned, that, that famous book that's missing in, in game studies, a, a book that would be about JRPGs uh, uh, entirely. Now, at the moment, this, this scholarship is very much scattered around other types of collections and, and journals. And uh, but JRPGs do need some kind of framework that's uh, that, that involves uh, parts of area studies, but also parts of game studies to make sense of them a bit more uh, concretely. Um, and this is, I think, one of the uh, one of the uh, opportunity to, to 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 get the ball rolling on that on that regard. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, 2019 was a great opportunity because not only was the Replaying Japan conference hosted in uh, Kyoto at the Ritsumeikan Center for Game Studies, um, but DIGRA was on at the same time. That's the, the Digital Games Research Association conference, and they're huge, and they're both on at the same time, the same week, in Kyoto, same place. And so you had a lot of scholars there, a lot of conversations uh, going on, and it was perfect for us. You know, we could go to a lot of different panels and see, well, who's working on JRPGs right now? And then talk to them and say, hey, you know, would you be interested in uh, contributing to a book on this? And, and a lot of people said, well, yeah, that's, that is a great opportunity and this is something that's needed. That's amazing. It's really great to know that there are many um, scholars working on this topic. I'm sure a lot of students will be interested to hear and learn more about it. Um, just out of curiosity, what's your favorite JRPG? Um, well, I, um, I'll go first. I think I've been playing JRPGs for as long as I can uh, remember. You know, I'm playing video games, you know, per se. Um, but Final Fantasy VII remains a favorite for, for me. I don't think this, this is a very original opinion, as noted from uh, the remakes uh, released uh, over the current years, you know, the very recent years, and the, the ones coming up next year as well. So I would have to say that. Uh, Rachel, what's your take on this? Uh, yeah, I'd have to agree. The Final Fantasy series uh, looms very large in my research. Um, but out of that series, I think I like Final Fantasy IV 
a lot. I really like the dark character, you know, and the crazy adventures all the characters end up taking in that game. It's it's a lot of fun. It's very over the top and it's engrossing and um, just, just a really interesting game, I think. Good to know. Uh, I think a lot of students, my students too, they really love Final Fantasy, the entire series. So um, they would very love this. Now, can you give us a brief overview or introduction about JRPG? Um, Even though many of our listeners might be familiar with it, what does it mean? And more importantly, how did it begin and transform? What do we need to know about JRPG to read this book um, without any experience of playing JRPGs such as myself? Yeah, well, there's kind of three parts to that question. So one is, you know, where did JRPGs come from? And then the next one is, what is this term JRPG and how is it used? And then, you know, how do you pick up a JRPG and play it if you've never played one before? So I think we might take it in turns to answer this question. Um, But in terms of the genre, I think the early 1980s is a really important period of time when you're looking at where Japanese role-playing games come from. Uh, There were two Western games that um, gained a lot of traction on the PC in Japan, and those were Wizardry and Ultima. Uh, But their fantasy worlds drew very heavily on Western fantasy, like J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and um, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and things like this. And the Japanese audience didn't really have a lot of background in those things. And so what happened was um, a lot of gaming magazines started running articles explaining things like the lore of Middle Earth or, um, you know, the rule sets and and creatures of Dungeons and Dragons and things like this. And so that kind of primed the audience a little bit more and made the idea of RPG not so strange. And then when Wizardry came out on the Famicom, in 1987, that really made the game a lot more accessible, you know, because kids don't have a PC (laughs) that they're able to play games on, right? Um, And then the other thing was because these Western RPGs and the early Japanese RPGs were very small, um, they were also extremely difficult, right? Because if the game's small, you have to find ways to keep the player's attention and engrossment in the game, like really hard riddles or puzzles or traps or something like that. And so people found them very difficult to play and almost impossible to complete. Uh, So Koyama Yusuke in our book, uh, he talks about the ease of play revolution that happened in the 80s in Japan where game designers started making the games easier. You know, and and they're on the Famicom. So these kind of things came together so that more people could play the games, younger people could play the games. Um, And the mid-1980s, that's when Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy come out. Um, By the 1990s, the genre settles into a kind of a template with the shonen hero and his party questing across the world. Um, You've got menu-based commands for battle and exploration, story-driven progress, uh, very well-developed characters uh, whose relationships are really interesting. And so this idea of the JRPG solidifies around, you know, this idea. So you know one when you see one kind of thing and the whole genre becomes very self-reflexive and if you look at 1995 that's when Chrono Trigger came out and it's kind of the classic JRPG Um, but then the next year 
Pokemon came out and changed a lot of, you know, it was very innovative and, and changed a lot of things about how the game works. Um, so in a nutshell, you know, that's kind of where the JRPG comes from. But Jeremy's done a lot more work on this term, JRPG. Right. Um, it's interesting to mention this 1990s time period in terms of uh, Japanese role-playing games, because this is not exactly when it starts getting circulated abroad, but this is when it, this circulation, or at least the, the presence, becomes important. And so it, it gets cemented into the mind of players outside Japan as this is the form that JRPGs take, right? And this is even now that when we think of a Japanese role-playing game, we do think about these party-based dynamics of uh, uh, 8-bit and 16-bit uh, art style and that uh, turn-based battle and so on and so forth. Um, but then I think we have to ask the question, well, what, what does that affect? does on Japanese role-playing games, right? To think of them this way. So the idea I think that, that we develop in the book as well in the introduction part is that the JRPG is a, is a discourse as well in terms of genre. It's a discourse that's co-created by both Japanese games in the way that they are, but also how they are circulated uh, elsewhere and how they are received and that, what kind of discourse that, 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 that degenerate in the locales in which they are circulated. Um, uh, we have to, I think, mention first and foremost that JRPG as a term, it, it is not a Japanese term. It's a term that was developed uh, outside of Japan as a reaction to these kinds of games that didn't look like uh, role-playing games from elsewhere or from, I think, the, the, the broader Western Tolkien tradition of wizardry and, and, and forth. Um, and, and so in a way, it is the only video game genre that's really tied to a cultural sort of origin, the cultural belonging, uh, that's very, very different from genres like first-person shooters or adventure games, which are not really, culturally speaking, uh, so localized. Um, and so to some extent, talking about Japanese role-playing games or JRPG always involve a sort of Japan, a, a, a real and, and imagined Japan, Japanese-ness, in the way that they are looked at in the West and in foreign markets. So one of the interesting questions uh, that I think the book tackles a little bit is, is well, is JRPG a national video game genre, as, as we would call cinema, like the national cinema, which is something that might be more arguably that exists, or is it just a design genre that anybody can appropriate, or that, that, that is simply a set of conventions that, that are distinct from, from its cultural origin, right? Uh, so it is, I think it is constructed as a discourse both by foreign forces and, and local forces in a somewhat unequal way, as one side is on the making end and the other one on the receiving end. And of course, uh, most of these discussions uh, do occur in English. And then so we have this sort of vacuum uh, discursive bubble that, that happened where it's completely divorced from the origin, uh, origins of the genre. That is very interesting. So I, I don't play any RPG <laughs> which is yep. why so reading this book was a was a, a huge um, learning process for me. But um, so in the book, what are some of the major themes that the volume covers, and how are they structured in the book? Right. Well, the um, the book subtitle is genre representation and liminality in the JRPG and that basically is the structure of the book. There's two, three parts and the first part is called genre. <laughs> um, so, you know, looking at the genre, this part is a lot about um, like formalistic elements 
Uh, we talk about where the genre comes from, um, how it connected to platforms and the, the different um, generations of consoles that came out. They're very tightly uh, connected to, for example, the Final Fantasy releases. You always have to have a new release for the new console and so on. Uh, we talk about uh, tutorial characters and this idea that the story of a JRPG is quite linear. And we talk about the... Um, the circulation of this idea of, of JRPG. So that's all in, in the idea of genre, right? Representation um, looks more at gender, disability, social critique in the JRPG, different games um, that have represented identity in different ways. And then I think liminality, we were thinking more in terms of networked and online play, uh, future directions of the genre, um, mobile games and, and um, really bridging this genre across platforms and how the genre went beyond expectations, I think. Right. I think one of the ideas of, of the, the need to research JRPGs is that there's a lack of consensus on, on uh, how it is defined and what are its, its, um, its, its defining characteristics. And I think part one really tackles these questions. It doesn't necessarily provide the clear-cut answers that perhaps fans would like to, to know, you know to, to use in debates online, but I think the questions that it raises are very important when thinking about individual games, right? The point, I think, uh, of all these chapters taken together is, is that it's a very fluid uh, entity, very fluid genre, and um, they need to be taken not in broad general generalizations, but uh, in case studies, right? Case by case. It, JRPG, uh, as a co-constructed discourse, is very performative in, in this way. And um, I think liminality, the last part of this uh, uh, of the book, uh, really tackles, uh, I think, the marginalities of the genre, right? As, as I mentioned before, uh, we do expect certain things from JRPGs to turn-based battles or pixel art or elements like that. Um, but a lot of games, even in the past and, and even more now, they, they are doing things that are, that are different. And so we need to be looking at these games that don't exactly strike us and from a Western perspective as JRPGs, but they might have answers to, um, they might provide answers to uh, what we should interpret JRPGs to be or uh, what it could be, what their directions should be, uh, thinking about uh, the party-based systems. What happens when the, in the Japanese, in the role-playing games from Japan where you don't have necessarily party systems? Um, does it, it raises questions as to what, what its nature is. And I think finally, uh, I think the structure of the book, as, as the, your reader might, will, uh, will probably uh, realize, is that uh, we have contributors from, from all over the world in, in, in the book, uh, very different uh, uh, well, institutions and uh, language as well. So this was a, an interesting struggle to, to, uh, to tackle when we, when we did edit the book, but very satisfying. And I think the readers will enjoy the different perspectives uh, that are provided. So in terms of both form and content, I think it's, it's a book that's very diverse in, in, uh, in this regards. Yes, it you know, is. I think, uh, I think people would be surprised that, you know, it's not a roll call of all the great classics of JRPG history, you know. Um, but, you know, we do have, we have the chapters on Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger and things like this. But there's also, you know, there's a chapter on Final Fantasy XIV which is an online, massively multiplayer 
uh, role-playing game, right? And uh, Dark Souls, and um, you know, which is a Japanese role-playing game, but people don't think of it as a JRPG. So what what is it? What kind of uh, qualities does that game series have that um, makes it, you know, worthy of being in this JRPG book? Well, you can you can probably read and find out, but uh, you know. Um, the, J, the main point I think we're trying to get across is that JRPG doesn't just mean one thing. It's a very multifaceted uh, idea, I think. And um, as Jeremy mentioned, this idea of JRPG is a transnational idea and the way it circulates and comes back and loops around in on itself to kind of reinforce expectation or um, suddenly move away from expectation. That's what I think we find interesting about the genre. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, before I read the book, well, okay, there were a few games that I did not know that were JRPG until I read your book, like Dark Souls, for example. And I was also really amazed by the uh, very versatile perspectives in the book. Um, there were so many elements. So some of the games I've watched a few clips of, but I just never really paid attention to... Um, the 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 elements that reflect larger social backgrounds so i was hoping to ask more about this um part um these themes so recently i guess um genre and representation um scholars have started to discuss these um as uh as a part of discussions on japan's social changes in the modern time so what are some of the ways that Japan's social problems are reflected in JRPG? Um, well, Japan's uh, social problems, as you say, are reflected in the JRPG uh, the same as any society's attitudes and ideas are conveyed through artwork from that place, right? So in this case, uh, some of the issues explored in the book are gender representation, uh, disability, uh, what it means to live in a networked age and so on. But in terms of tackling specific social problems in Japan, um, I don't think that's really what we're getting at in the book. It's more like how do some certain video game titles explore these ideas in different ways. I think uh, one of the aspects that really comes across is that uh, it's not just Japan's social problem, but also they, they talk to global global ones, right? Um, not, not just, sorry, not just Japan's social problems, but, but global social problems as well. That's what I meant. Um, well, Japanese role-playing games are especially meant for the global market, uh, first and foremost, uh, um, as the Japanese uh, population declines uh, for the past 10 years, uh, studios have been more keen on trying to market these games abroad as well. So uh, they are, when they are designed, they are meant to be speaking to both uh, both locales and both, uh, both audiences, So, uh, it, which is reflected in, in, in marketing campaigns and uh, all of these uh, paratextual sources. Um, but I, as uh, Richard was mentioning, there are uh, a few elements in there that are very, uh, of keen interest, but uh, we do explore majority uh, disabilities, how disability is, is represented in, uh, in so, some of these games, uh, identity as well. Um, 
the marginalities and how, how do we cope with uh, a homogeneous world. Um, some of the games do tackle that very, uh, very uh, bluntly. Um, the ecological crisis, I think, is of foremost importance, right? We don't necessarily talk about that in the book, but this is something that, that really ties into a lot of other things. Um, since the 1990s, the ecological crisis has been part of many big franchises, the Final Fantasies and, and, and whatnot. Um, and I think it does, as we are looming more towards the, this, this uh, global uh, crisis, I think JRPGs do uh, have this aspect to them that it's still under underused and under-examined that, that could help us you know, uh, retrace the imagination uh, and, and, and reformulate what we could be what could gaming represent in terms of ecological crisis and how to think about this? Of course, uh, I think Rachel has been doing a lot of work on, on, on politics, empire, and ethnicity recently on, on, on the Final Fantasy series. Um, I, um, religion and power is also something that is very dear to the genre. Um, um, how to deal with... Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> how to uh, cope with uh, uh, religious powers and, and how to make a place for oneself within that system and how to reimagine alternatives, I think is was one of the themes um, very present in the genre as well. Um, which all of these uh, really reflect on, will reflect on different uh, audiences. So in, we do, uh, I think we do have Western audience reacting to these themes uh, very much on the social media and uh, on the internet. It's something the forums on Japanese role-playing games have been present since the beginning of the 1990s, you know, internet. Um, this is, I mean, this, I'm, I'm going on a tangent here on the alternative work that I do on, on uh, paratextual sources, but uh, yes, they are very much uh, topics that talk to different types of audiences in different ways. Indeed. And I want to return to a point that Rachel raised earlier. So you mentioned how um, these games explore um, these uh, various aspects of social problems. Could you give us a more um, specific example? What's, um, say, one of the games covered in this book that does explore these um, issues? Um, well, I can give you an example. So my chapter is on disability in Final Fantasy XV, which is a fairly recent game. It's very popular. It's very easy to play. You were asking earlier, you know, you've never played a JRPG before. This would be the perfect one to start with. Uh, the tagline is actually a game for fans and first timers. So they really do make it very easy uh, for people to understand what's going on in the game. Um, and this is a game where... A major character, not the main character that you're controlling, but a major character, one of your party, uh, becomes blind during the course of play. And, um, you know, the, the depiction of blindness in, in Japanese literature and film and, and any kind of uh, cultural product often has, you know, this very grand sense of tragedy about it, right? Um and so that can make you feel very disconnected from the character. But Final Fantasy designers are very good at making you feel empathy for characters in the game, not only the character that you're controlling, 
for other people around you. And when Ignis is blinded, um, all of a sudden what happens is there's a narrative impact so people around Ignis feel very sorry for him and try and help him or get angry at the fact that he can't keep up with the party anymore and things like this. People are frustrated. Uh, All very natural emotional reactions, right? Um, But the game wants you to feel this more, right? And so what they do is... um, Ignis has a number of roles in the game. So he's the driver, he's the cook, he's the tactician in battle. He tells you what to do in battle. He's in charge of all the money and so on. So he's this uh, very helpful figure in the game and you rely on him, okay, and your character Noctis relies on Ignis to do all these things for him. Now when Ignis is blinded, all of a sudden you can't rely on him for those roles anymore. You have to drive the car yourself. And as a player, if you haven't been driving the car around, all of a sudden it's really difficult because the car takes damage. Like if you knock into the slightest thing, the car are going to be cracking the windscreen, right? Um, Ignis isn't cooking for you anymore. And so you open up the bag at the campsite to see what's for dinner and it's this tinned food and it's cold and it's just this terribly dispiriting moment, right? But in battle, the, the biggest impact on you is in battle because usually in battle uh, you can press a button and, and Ignis will tell you what to do and you will automatically carry out these orders, right? Um, but this auto function is taken away. Ignis can't see what's going on in the battle, so he can't tell you what to do anymore. And, and so all of a sudden you have to come up with a completely different uh, button input strategy, like right then and there in the middle of a really difficult battle in the middle of a dungeon, and it's really hard. And this makes you feel it, right? So your character doesn't have the disability. It's somebody in your party, but it really does make you feel something. And so these are the ways in which I think the JRPG can explore Things like disability, in, not just in a narrative way, but in a very physical um, way. Because, you know, you, you physically have to figure out a different button to press on the controller. And this is after you've already spent about 20 hours in the game pressing this other button combination, right? So you really do have to think on your feet. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. That was one of my favorite chapters. And, and I as I was reading, I thought, wow, what an what a creative way to make the difficulty level even worse (laughs) um yeah i did give it a good moment of thinking that i was going to try the game but after i read your chapter i decided not to (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) but uh jeremy how about your chapter Right, uh, my chapter is about the game Blackrock Shooter, the game, which is 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 not um, a game that uh, I think most uh, of your listeners would know of. It's more of a marginal game, uh, released for the PSP uh, at the beginning of the 2010s. What's interesting about that game that I found out is that it is has to do with its company, the, the, the designers of the game, which is Image Epoch uh, at the time of the 2010s. The interesting aspect is that. This was a, a turbulent moment for Japanese uh, video games, especially JRPGs, as many people in the West online were criticizing the game. When Final Fantasy XIII was released, the game was really criticized for being um, 
for integrating Western tropes into game design and sort of denaturating uh, the game, right? And so we have we were, we were tackled with with a discourse of of JRPGs, Japanese role playing games, where were antiquated and very old and very backward. And so um, that company made a big splash about that, and, and they decided to be the white knight of the group in Japan and say, well, we are going to reform JRPGs, right? Directly quoting these these criticism from the West. And so they made this game, Black Rock Shooter, which is a direct response, in my opinion, to that kind of um, discourse and criticism. In the game, uh, more specifically, um, well, the game is about clone uh, clone weapons, uh, anthropomorphized uh, girls, which um, had to fight to liberate humanity, right? But over the course of the game, we see that they are very uh, not very well, um, they don't mingle well with the other protagonists and they feel very strange and marginalized and they do low, lose a sort of purpose, a sense of purpose and to live and to survive. Um, but to unlock the real endings, the true ending, you have to go through all kinds of mini quests to unlock the important information that gives back one of the sisters the will to live. And that specific information is that her name was taken from the Japanese uh, numbers, right? Her name is Nana and we don't know exactly why, but in the game, it, it really clean, plainly tells the player that, well, this is a, 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 the name from the Japanese number seven. And so this gives her a sort of a sense of purpose, a new, a renewed identity. And, and to, in that move, in that rhetorical move, I think I see uh, the studio trying to see that, well, Japanese role-playing games, you know, the, the identity of it is that it's Japanese going back to the cultural origin, which is an interesting counter, counter move to the Western, uh, Western, Western criticism of that time, which is not to say that this is exactly what we should strive to look at JRPGs as, a, a, a pure expression of Japanese-ness or something like that. But it is, I think it opens our, our eyes to what happens when these different forces, the discursive forces uh, interlock and clashes and what the kind of response they might provoke and elicit uh, and how we should probably be wary of what type of discourse we have as academics and researchers about JRPGs, not to uh, repeat this sort of um, uh, probably negative uh, way to uh, essentialize Japanese role-playing games in that regard. That's a really good point, and it brings me to my next question, actually. Now, with JRPG being probably the most influential RPG culture, how does it bring Japan to the rest of the world? Do they um, showcase, with their exploration of Japan's social issue, do they showcase these problems to the world and maybe remind the rest of the world of similar problems that's going on in other cultures? Um. So some games you can definitely tell are from Japan, like something like Persona 5. It's set in Tokyo. It's very realistic, uh, photorealistic 3D environment. You walk through the streets of Tokyo and you encounter a lot of um, problems and issues that are based on real life, for example, political scandals or high school issues. Um, others, you know, other games are set elsewhere or in a fantasy situation, but you can tell it's a Japanese product because the, the characters, you know, they, they're basically anime characters, right? So there's this specific sort of visual look that signals to you that this is a, a Japanese product, right? But then something like Dark Souls, for example, you can't tell. There's nothing in that game, really, that, well, not a lot anyway, that tells you, oh, this is very definitely 
from a Japanese studio. Um, so what we're trying to do is highlight that the Japanese uh, role-playing game is a very varied, multifaceted genre, which brings Japan to the world uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, but having said that, I mean, personally, I think that the JRPG positions you, the player, in a very specific role in society and then you have to interact with others in order to achieve your goals in the game and I think that the party-based quest I mean particularly in the 1990s that template um, I think the party-based quest is all about that social interaction uh, which you also find in the online games discussed in the later chapters of the book and I think this tells us that Japanese game designers really value this social interaction. And I think it's because Japanese society changed so rapidly in the 1990s. And this lost decade that people talk about is not just an economic implosion, but also a social one. And I think that young people in particular can find a lot of solace and support in the JRPG, in that party-based system um, that perhaps isn't so readily available in the modern world. And Jeremy was talking earlier about the time of crisis. We are in a time of crisis. And I think one of the reasons why games like Final Fantasy VII and things like this are being remastered and re-released and taken up by a whole new generation of players right now is because we need that. We, we want that feeling of um, being included and belonging somewhere to reach our goal and um, to be supported by others. That's that's my take on your question. Um, I think over the years, uh, since the 1990s and 2000, I think JRPGs have, have been used as a bridge to Japanese cultures for many, many people. Um, not, uh, well, it, which might seem a bit contradictory to what I was just talking about, uh, not to read them in specifically into uh, cultural reading too, uh, too essentially, but uh, language is a big part of this because it's a corpus that is not entirely available in English uh, or other languages. Um, so fans have been using uh, Japanese role-playing games because of the textual qualities and, and all the very long experiences that do tell something about a lot of themes uh, as a bridge to learn Japanese and to translate games. So I think the, the practice of, of fan translation is one that is very interesting about the medium and it really kickstarted a, a trend that we now take for granted. Uh, many games now, um, uh, many translation groups now are tackling games from decades ago and, and releasing them on the internet. But um, Final Fantasy V, I think back in the 1990s, is one of the first games that truly kickstarted that in a very uh, strong manner, both you know, in English and uh, on my side, I, I, I've been navigating through French translations of Final Fantasy V, right, and uh, things like that. So they do have, the Japanese role-playing games do have the power to galvanize, I think, their audience into engaging very deeply into them um, and to the, to the extent of learning Japanese language, right, which is not an easy task to do. Uh, and, and in regards to the, the corpus that's very fragmented and difficult to access in its entirety as, as Western players or... Um, from players outside of Japan, fans are, are closely, are, are slowly closing the gap of, of that kind of, of knowledge by bringing games over. Um, but this is also a practice that's a very uh, important for researchers to examine closely, right? 
what is being added and what is being removed in these fan translation processes and how different are they from uh, official channels of circulations. Um, so many, many questions interesting uh, in that regard. Indeed. And um, we've talked uh, in detail about the two, the first two major themes of the book, which is genre and representation. Now I want to ask more about the last one, liminality. How do the chapters address this theme of liminality, liminality and what are some of the conclusions that you can draw from it? Yeah, thanks, Jingyi. That's a really interesting question. And when we're talking about liminality, I think our idea is that the JRPG is something that builds a bridge, right? Um, there's a lot of boundaries around this discursive term, and it travels, right? This discursive term travels. It didn't start in Japan, as Jeremy's research has shown. Uh, it's an English-speaking kind of a term. Uh, scholars in Japan don't really use the term JRPG. And when they do, they use it in different ways, right? Um, so it's, it's kind of a liminal genre to start with in, in that sense. Uh, if you look at the, there's four chapters in the uh, part of the book, part three, that's titled Liminality. And uh, we're talking about games as networked practice, online gaming, mobile gaming, social games, things that do not bring to mind the console-based, you know, the Famicom, the PlayStation, uh, the, the natural home of the JRPG as, as we tend to think about it. So in this section, uh, we're thinking of how does the JRPG bridge across platforms? How does this genre travel, you know, in a technological sense? How does it bring communities together online? Right, and in other kinds of networked play. Uh, Dark Souls is very interesting here because, you know, there's traces of other players in your iteration of the game, even though you, you never meet them. They leave after effects in the game. So what does that mean? Right, so we're way beyond the party-based quests now. <laughs> um, and that, that's what I find interesting, these different ways in which um, the JRPG has kind of morphed and transformed and, and taken advantage of uh, technological advances over time. Absolutely. Um, in terms of uh, its relation to the media mix as well, right? as the Dark Souls example indicates, uh, what happens when... JRPGs do leave aside some of these uh, some of these aspects that we seem essential. Uh, what uh, what to what extent can we define it still as a JRPG, or how it does it get recognized as such? Um, and, uh, yeah, that's um, that that's something definitely to think about. Even though I don't even play JRPG. Um. <laughs> I, I do, uh, in my defense, I do watch anime that's adapted from JRPG. And sometimes I think um, the elements in the JRPG can be translated into the anime. Like in Black Rock Shooter, for example, um, even though they didn't make the point of the name change very explicit, it was there at least and was presented to the viewers in, diff in a different way. So, yeah, definitely. I, I hope um, to see more of these... Uh, covered in future JRPG and I hope they can make the game simpler 
um, <laughs> while preserving the elements. I don't know if that will happen. <laughs> I think it's getting more complex rather than simpler. Although, having said that, you know, there's JRPGs on your phone now. There's mobile games, right? And so these are very adaptable and, and very accessible to a very wide audience, you know. So if you don't have 150 hours to sit down and play something like Orkami, <laughs> you know, that was it's a massive, massive game. Then you can play a much smaller game on the phone. And I think that's where people will be trying this genre out, you know. And I think, you know, because it's a, a genre that's very heavily based in story and character, um, you were saying earlier, you know, if you've never played a JRPG, how do you just pick one up? Um, they're very kind to the player these days. They introduce you to the characters one by one. You get to know something about your main character, who you're controlling. You have a world to explore. You can explore that at your own pace, right? So when I say I spend 150 hours in Final Fantasy XII, which I just did over the last two years, um, not everybody will spend that much time in there because I wanted to do every side quest. I wanted to explore every single environment. But it's also very possible to just go straight through the central story, just play the main missions. That's what Final Fantasy XV allows you to do. You can finish that game in 20 hours if you want to, right? That's good to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really good to know. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for this very fun conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you like JRPGs or if you're interested in learning more about Japan's social and cultural aspects through JRPGs, make sure to check out this new book, Japanese Role-Playing Games, Genre, Representation, and Liminality in the JRPG. I am Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.